So what is the purpose of the podcast? What are we aiming to do? Kind of relay what we're experiencing going through, seeing, all that kind of stuff. Okay. So I went through the notes from the initial meeting that we had before COVID started, <clears throat> and essentially... Oh, there was a meeting. We had a meeting. Was Matt Hancock at the meeting? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> um, so we were talking about actually the name that we went for was People Don't Talk. And essentially. Ooh, I like that name, you know? Yeah. Why did yeah. you change that? I don't know if it was because like, everybody's like frontline people workers, key talk. workers. So know, we decided to sort of pick up it. I really like People Don't Talk. I quite, yeah, I quite like that one. Yeah, People Don't Talk. And then focusing on the fact that actually there are a lot of things that people don't realise that us doctors we go through. Um, And then actually being able to talk about it so that other people realise. Should it be doctors don't talk? Yeah, I was going to say that. Doctors don't talk. Yeah, I like that. I really like that name. That's a good one because doctors don't, do they? No. This is how far I got with writing a note. That's just... Perspective, opinions, and banter. <laughs> I was literally just say, you lot are just cracking jokes. Jamie. You had a meeting, and one of the key words, one of the eight words noted down was banter. I really like that name, Dr. Zentor. Well, let's call it that. Yeah. Oh. You just have to redesign the logo down. Welcome to the first show in our podcast series, Doctors Don't Talk. We are four junior doctors. Uh, my name is Nick Patel, my foundation year two doctor, and joining me is... Med, hello. Uh, I'm also a foundation year two doctor, working previously in stroke. Now, I guess we all work in COVID, but that's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> and... Hi, I'm Amazie. I am also an FYT doctor doing general medicine slash COVID. Hi, I'm Ayo. I am also a Foundation Year 2 doctor, um, previously on geriatrics, now working as part of this general medicine COVID. So currently I work in emergency medicine. I've been based there since December. That was for four months and that's been extended by another four months um and uh, what does it feel like working on emergency medicine forever do you uh, feel happy I about have that a feeling i'll be stuck there for the rest of my life to be honest <laughs> i don't think i'm ever gonna move on from it <laughs> but it's all right i'm getting used to it now what about you you've had long enough if you're not used to it by now then yeah that is true <laughs> so i've so far just worked uh since the whole covid thing started i've only been working out of hours so i've just done nights and late shifts uh covering covid wards it's been fairly brutal but it's supporting your supportive care so most of it's you know support with oxygen support with antibiotics to cover other things and you know decide whether or not things need to go further what were you major um (laughs) it varies actually because it's i started on nights and my nights were quite busy um 
had a lot of patients that had come in through the medical assessment unit who were suspected COVID cases who ended up being COVID cases. But actually, we've turned into more of a supportive care. So there are patients who have been discharged who have had COVID. Um, and that's also very promising to, or rather encouraging, to see um, as us staff, because we thought it was just going to be quite brutal and mentally tasking just to have that conversation every single time with patients' families saying, you're not going to make it. It's going to be really difficult. I'm afraid that, you know, the ceiling of care is going to be ward-based and things like that. But actually, we've done a little bit more, given antibiotics, as you might have said, given fluids, oxygen if needed. And yeah, people do tend to get better, which is quite nice. Otherwise, it's chilling. <laughs> <laughs> What's it like going back? Because I know <clears throat> both of us were FI1s there. When was it? About a year and a half ago? Yeah. About a year ago. About a year yeah. ago, during winter yeah. of F1. Yeah. What's it like going back? It, yeah, it's very, it's quite surreal, yeah. that's the word. Yeah. Um, because having gone back as an F2 and as an SHO, you have much more responsibility. Going back as an SHO, having had HPB behind my yeah. back, as well as A&E and then psychiatry, I do feel better prepared and it has been... A sort of I've like walked in with a bit yeah. more confidence. That's good. HPB so, is hepatobiliary medicine. Anyone was thinking hepatobiliary surgery, rather. which means you also loved. Mm. It was a it's a tough job, but it is I a feel tough like job. all of this next bit could be off the record. Now. <laughs> no, 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 okay. Doctors don't talk. Doctors don't talk. Doctors don't talk. Doctors don't talk. So you've got to be honest. So you <laughs> know, yeah. No, it was a tough job, but I felt like it actually. It helped me get closer to my colleagues. Um, so we supported each other a lot. HPB is quite a gruelling specialty in that a lot rides on what the surgeons do. And the outcomes of the patients are it's almost directly correlated with yeah. the performance in surgery. So you can sort of imagine the characters that come into that specialty in that they are very precise they are great at what they do however the intensity in which they want their patients to do well is sort of um reflected on the juniors and the juniors feel that brunt of the intensity mm. and therefore it makes it a harder job so that's why I, I felt like i was closer to my colleagues because we had to support each other through that um and using other sources like Critical Care Outreach, who were amazing, shout out to them, bruh, bruh. <laughs> and, <laughs> and other specialties like the number of times I've called microbiology, the number of times I've called hematology. Honestly, it is quite an MDT approach that you don't realise that you use. And MDT is multidisciplinary team where you call on different teams to help you through the job. So yeah, helped help me grow, and I feel like that prepared me a lot for A and E. Yeah, yeah. Um, even the consultant said, "Oh, you've done HBB now. You should be great for A and E." I was like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> "So." <laughs> Thank God there's no cameras in but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, he, uh, he was right, and A and E seemed easier, and I feel like the consultants in A and E kind of noticed that people who had done HPB and yeah. gone into ED, they had a different little 
edge to them. Yeah, I think if you've done a surgical job, going into ED makes life a lot easier. <laughs> so Aya, how are you doing? What are you working on at the moment? For people that don't know, um, every four months, um, trainees or F2s and F1s, they rotate every four months to different specialties. And we were supposed to rotate to our new specialties, was it what, beginning of yeah. April? A few weeks ago, two weeks ago. But because COVID happened, um, <laughs> why is everyone laughing? You just sound like you're about to be very bitter. <laughs> <or something. laughs> Listen, just stating facts though, because COVID happened, um, nationally, nobody rotated and just remained in their departments just so you wouldn't have to tackle a new department and treating COVID. So I remained on what was supposed to be on geriatrics, but the medicine department have changed everything into either COVID or non-COVID. And everything non-COVID is now just general medicine that you treat anything and anything. So it's been it's been interesting. My medicine has been <laughs> um, long pause. Yeah, that was a long. Has been. I've been learning a lot. Test mm. Say that. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been learning a lot, and I think everyone has been learning a lot because consultants that haven't been working on the wards for nine plus years, that have their main job is just in clinics and seeing mm. people as outpatients, have been drawn back into the ward environment, and everyone's just been adapting. So, just getting used to that. That's been quite interesting. It's been fun. I enjoy my team. So it's been good. It's been yeah, good. so we've had like, so my, my team's got heart doctors, lung doctors, cancer doctors, you know, joint doctors. We've yeah. got every conceivable specialty working together in one team mm. covering general medicine stuff, which usually has cool. nothing to do with their specialty. So yeah. it's going back mm. to basics. Yeah. Um, that's quite cool because if you think about it that's never it's never happened, happened. Yeah. it'll never happen yeah. again yeah. it's unheard of yeah. it's insane to we think of a consultant analyst yeah exactly next to a, it's so crazy yeah. next to a dermatologist ne- yeah. next to a hepatologist or a liver doctor yeah it's just doing things that they cool. never usually do and just having to remember stuff from med school basically that it's was the last time when they did um, this stuff mm. med school and you know, junior, years. junior years, yeah. Because yeah. there were already loads I've forgotten since graduating. Yeah, exactly. Mm. So imagine, and that was like a couple of years yeah. for us. Yeah, yeah. these and they guys. Have to do ward rounds, gen med yeah. ward rounds. Mm. Yeah, scary, scary. Mm. So I know there's been like loads of restructuring around the hospital in terms of services and um, the care that everyone gets uh, that's being provided. <clears throat> so in ED. They've been really good and like they restructured ED at least three, four weeks ago. So now there's kind of two separate emergency departments. Sorry, ED stands for emergency department. So there's two different emergency departments now. Um, we've got a hot COVID side emergency department that deals with all the people coming with breathing problems, fevers, who we suspect have COVID. And then we've got a blue side, which is all the normal emergencies where people don't necessarily have COVID. Um, so we kind of have two different um, emergency department teams which operate pretty much separately um, so what I found over the last few weeks is even though right now we're in the middle of well, we're meant to be in the middle of the peak I think we've been working quite well so we haven't seen a huge spike in cases but having said that over the last I would say five six days through the emergency department they have been coming in quite 
steadily. But the people who are coming in are the ones who are seriously ill. Mm-hmm. So even though initially we tried to get loads of patients discharged, because obviously people only need to be admitted if they need oxygen mm. or if they have something else going on. Mm. Um, but now what we're seeing is that people who are being brought to the emergency department by paramedics are seriously ill. Mm. So even though we have fewer cases coming in, those ones are really ill, so they do take a lot of time to deal with anyway. Mm. Um, but obviously the department's been restructured, so... Um, makes life a lot easier for us actually there's clear instructions what to do what about upstairs on the wards Mm. Uh, well I think it's a bit of a good news story here actually because we've prepped well and we've been able to deal with the amount of people who have come like it is sad when you have multiple elderly patients who have lots of comorbidities who aren't going to make it through if we send them to intensive care or get them breathing through machines and ventilators and things and they pass away on the wards but beyond that we the people who have needed and would survive having intensive care Mm. we've been able to treat and give intensive care and i think that was one of the big worries that i had and one of the problems i think they're facing in london is that there's there's not enough intensive care beds for the people who would possibly survive and be fit for intensive care Um, and that's what they struggled with in Italy Um, I think one of the reasons was because well I don't know if this is completely if this this is um, 100% true but I think the average length of being on a ventilator to be a COVID is around about 14 days that's at least what I've heard so if we obviously used up all the ventilators at the beginning three four weeks ago ended up ventilating anyone who came in regardless of age or what other medical conditions they had or whatever their prognosis was then obviously right now at this point in time we would have none left pretty much yeah so i think our approach was quite sensible i think we made it clear you know even four weeks ago when elderly people were coming in um who had symptoms or diagnosed with covid i think we were making quite clear to them that there's only so much we can do and the consultants are really proactive in that. But also they were quite good at listening to them and reassuring patients because obviously the last thing you want to be told is, you know, we're not going to actively resuscitate you mm-hmm. or start chest compression, which is, you know, a lot of elderly people want that to happen because they want to live. Um, but I think that's the, probably the most difficult thing that I've found. But, you know, it's important that it's not, you know, it's not people who are just elderly, it's people who won't do well if they had intensive care, yeah. if they if they were ventilated or if they had CPR, they wouldn't they would be very unlikely to survive. So doing this stuff for them would be futile anyway. Mm. So and I think the fact that we've made it clear nice and early that we're not doing that yeah. is, is good. You're right. Which I think is a complete contrast to what's happened in Italy mm. where I think a lot of elderly people were being ventilated quite early on and I think what happened then was actually they had a huge number of ventilators being used. They ran out very quickly, so there was no leeway whatsoever. And um, a great majority of those people didn't survive anyway yeah, because exactly. they were never going to survive, yeah. ventilator or not. Yeah. So what's been your approach to seeing patients? So a lot of the patients who have come in already have sort of had the discussions in the community about um, being resuscitated having chest compressions or not and a lot of the or I would say all of the patients who have had these discussions have decided not to have that for themselves so not to have chest compressions Um, which 
helps because once you've had that sort of conversation, your expectations sort of change in terms of what you expect to be treated for, um, considering all the other health problems that you may have. Yeah. And patients who are coming in with COVID that I have seen so far recognize that they are very ill and understand and voice what they would like and most voice that they would like to be kept comfortable. Mm. And so far, that's what I've been doing. So prescribing medication just to keep patients comfortable during their last few hours or days of their life. Um, Which is, people think that that's actually quite uh, sort of, uh, how do I put it, emotionally tasking. Yeah. But actually, for the fact that the focus is on giving what the pa- what the patient wants, which is to be kept comfortable, mm-hmm. and the fact that I can help to do that, that's actually rewarding in some sense. But yeah. it's also difficult because you've got to go home at the end of the day. Yeah. And when you're driving back home. Wouldn't make sense if you went home in the middle of the day. <laughs> <laughs> you invited me to this podcast, there's going to be dead. <laughs> Don't look at me like that. You knew what you signed up for. <laughs> I can't even remember my question. <laughs> you gotta go home at the end of the day? Right, yeah. something about that. So you gotta go home at the end of the day. Yeah. We stay there, it's up to you. But you gotta go home <laughs> and you know that you've just, I don't know, kind of taking a palliative approach to a mm. few patients. Mm. But the thing you have to live with as a doctor, as well as a junior, is the fact that you know they're going to die or they are dying but there's mm. nothing else you can or will do for them mm. even though it's their own decision mm. but that's one of the difficult things since graduating that's what I found yeah mm-hmm. um, I think a lot of my jobs um, especially on my um, out of hour shifts so my night shifts and my um, basically whenever I'm working after five o'clock um, you really want you see the sick person um, who already has a plan in terms of if things were to go wrong or if they were to deteriorate and they've agreed or decided how far they want to go in terms of treatment. But um, it might not be the same plan as someone else who is yeah. younger or doesn't have any other underlying conditions. And you're like, oh, but, you know, we could do this and we could do this and actually just saying this is what the patient wants. They don't want any more treatment after this ceiling um, and just seeing them deteriorate. But yeah, as you said, keeping them comfortable. Yeah. As to, so I struggled with that, in, that yeah. a lot initially. Yeah. And then the more you see and the more you do it, like yeah, actually I have to respect your wishes mm. and just, you know, keep you comfortable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Back in the uh, bad old days when doctors just made the decisions for you, I think that's I think that's why they they did that because it was difficult to watch someone make what feels like the wrong decision. Mm. You know, people make decisions about their care that are dumb sometimes, and I don't <laughs> like them. I don't <laughs> like those decisions. But mm. if they've made that decision, understanding mm. everything, then they've got to make it, and that's their right. But yeah. I. It, I do struggle with that. I think everyone struggles with that. Yeah. And I think that's why, you know, this way of thinking is fairly recent. Back in the day, we just did did what we thought was right. Yeah, mm. yeah. 
I think it's one of the beauties of working in elderly care or geriatrics. Like when you see the consultants having these conversations um, on a daily basis, like multiple times a day, and actually seeing it from somebody who is elderly, their point of view, mm. then you, you're like, oh, this makes sense. I understand why they take this position or they make this. Um, decision in terms of their care mm. yeah. and then you become more, more comfortable with it that's what mm. that's what I've appreciated yeah. Yeah. doing yeah. geriatrics yeah. definitely mm. it's yeah. a difference between looking at the numbers and looking at the person I guess yeah I think it puts the patient first essentially yeah just asking what they want I think that's that helps with my drive in the middle of the day or at the end of the day, whichever one that we've decided <laughs> to go with. Why are you commuting work in the middle of the day? <laughs> I might be there for lunch. She doesn't, <laughs> need, doesn't need drive at the end of the day. Yeah. At the end of the day. At the end of the day. She needs to drive in the middle. <laughs> Honestly, you guys are really, it's so simple. <laughs> um, this but, is literally just showing that our... <laughs> our days just jumbled into that they are pretty much because I was because like Med you said you haven't worked um, when was the last normal day you worked so 8, 9 a.m. start when was that? Uh, (laughs) like what are we mid-April? yeah probably mid-March wow so mine since we've redone the rotor eight weeks since the new medicine rotor I haven't done normal you, you're saying eight yeah, weeks mine's at least eight alien, weeks i'm pretty sure it was in mid-february slash yeah. uh, in january it was the last day when i worked at a and e doesn't day. believe well, in sleeping patterns i think no. that's a, that's a thing they haven't shared the research with everyone else but they've <laughs> <laughs> they found back that, that, that sleeping patterns are not a thing and we don't have to worry about right, them because the thing is right you work i don't know you work a twilight shift which yeah. is which is um <laughs> Four till one a.m. on the new rotor. On the old rotor, yeah. it was five until three a.m. Mm. So, what are you meant to do at three a.m.? <laughs> you go home. Are you, are you gonna eat? Not really. Mm. I'd, I like to have some crave with some, with some milk. But anyway. <laughs> I, so you have some food. You go to bed, and then you gotta wake up by eleven, twelve anyway to go back into work next day. But That's so you do like three week. or. Well, they do some exercise or something. Oh, goodness me, like, no. Oh, I treated it like a night shift. As I don't go out. All right, big room. flex. <laughs> <laughs> but you go from twilights, that's for three days, and then you get two days off or three days off, mm. and then you go to night shifts, which are 10 till 8, mm. and then you just go back to nut twilights, and you have to do that, which means you don't actually end up mm. getting a regular sleeping pattern. Mm. Which just makes life hard, to be honest. That's why I'm so shocked that you didn't opt to go, like, leave A&E. So... Well, I kind of did, but then that's when I asked for us to have a new rotor done, so we can at least, so at least it would oh, so be basically feasible. basically, you paved the way. Mm. Well done. Well, take, take, take your glory. It's all right. So four of us stayed on the new rotor. Look at this: then... exercising, making know, changes right? yeah. in the it's rotor. It's crazy. So, and for those and you can't see him, yeah. he's, he's, he's clean shaven right as well. <laughs> 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 I'm pretty sure he washed his hair this morning. <laughs> Look at you. Oh, God. It's nice how we support our colleagues, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it is nice. It is. Instead nice. of undermining them. <laughs> <laughs> so, what has been the hardest thing for you guys in the last three weeks? Just the one thing. Patience, whatever. 
for me, it's been the sort of lack of structure. As like in... we've in, the, in my whole life, okay. like both at home with when I'm quarantined and like not doing anything, and at work where we've completely changed the rotor pattern, so we're all doing these weird shifts. And my the ward I was supposed to be on wasn't open yet, so I was working on another random ward and working with random teams, and then you know straight from that into night shifts where you're covering just random wards again, and then. At home, it's like, you know, I haven't done isolation before. I don't know how to isolate. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. But like, how? what do you do for your day? You know, like, there's no like, oh, I'm going to do fix my car today and then do this in the afternoon, get a haircut, do that. Like, you know, the normal things that I fill my days with have all gone. So I'm doing, I'm having to find out how to do that, which is, I know everyone's struggling with that. And this random rotor pattern where, you know, you've not really got a team anymore and you're all over the place and you're meeting new doctors and nurses all the time and you've not worked with them before and, you know, every yeah, day is different. Yeah. So it's just like, it just feels very unstructured. The chaos at work and that. Yeah. Because yeah. mm. everything's been reversed pretty much, isn't it? Mm. Literally. What about you, Major? Um... I feel the difficult thing is just not being able to see family. Um, it would be... I was just thinking about the Easter weekend, just going yeah. although I was working. But after, when I had a few days off, um, because I was doing nights, I then was hoping to go back to see family, but then realised, oh, no way. £60 fine. So I decided... <laughs> <laughs> so, actually... Um, yeah, decided to stay home, watch a bit of Netflix, do a bit of gardening. Gardening? Uh, gardening, that's what been kind of, what my have you done in your thing. I've put some uh, grass grow mm. and have been watering the garden. Watering the grass? Watering <laughs> the grass. Okay. Not just the, the garden. Okay. <laughs> okay. Not the fences as well, just, okay. you know. Okay. Just the grassy areas. So, um, the grass is growing, which is, is great. Yes, I know. I'm very impressed with the little, uh, little grass growth. <laughs> um, we are not biased to any supermarkets. <laughs> Each packet of grass grows sold separately. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's what I've been doing. Uh, doing a bit more cooking. I think because I live on my own, yeah. so I'm sort of used to my own company. And, you know, me, myself and I, we're having a jam. <laughs> but I also lived off socialising, meeting other people yeah. because I lived on my own. So that has also been quite difficult. But the main thing is just not being able to see family. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, I? Same thing? Um, yeah, a couple of things. Um, I've done a lot of reflecting over this period, actually. So number one was um, the family thing um, and just how COVID or coronavirus evolved from being we are not in lockdown yet to locking down and having the conversation with family saying, actually, I'm not coming home and I don't know when next I'm going to see you. Yeah, yeah. Like, I remember thinking quite early on, actually, that I'm probably, like, high risk to my family. Mm-hmm. And I spent quite a few weeks 
before we went into lockdown, debating whether to tell my family, oh, I'm not coming home or should I just see how it goes and how they would react to that, but also how I would react to that. So when I finally made the decision, even before lockdown, I was just like, oh, I, I just can't put you at risk. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. That was quite difficult and not being able to see them for quite a while and you don't know when you can see them, it's difficult. So that was number one. Um, second thing I found really, really hard is, I think as doctors, we're very good with um, separating uh, how how patients make you feel and how um, we don't take it home. We don't take it home. Yeah. That's exactly mm, what I'm yeah. saying. We don't, we're, like, we'll, in the moment, like, we'll feel sad, but mm. we won't get too deep in our feelings. That's probably... The majority of the time. Mm. Until one day, yeah. you just crack. Yeah. Mm. You know? And I had a day like that because I, that was the day where um, I knew a f- few people that passed away. Mm. And it was just all so much. And then it wasn't just people with underlying health conditions passing away. Yeah. It was, like, younger people. Not that... You know younger people are more important but like children and people who are pregnant and people that you know that were completely healthy just um passing away from covid and it just got really real i'm sorry cracked. i didn't know I yeah didn't know i just, I just completely cracked um for a few days and then just recalibrated and then went back into doctor mode i was like yes okay you can start again now mm. yeah so th- that's been hard. All this rota, yeah, I mean, well, the my... greatest rota ever anyway. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? but, um, that point just sort of reality. sounds irrelevant though. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just the reality of it. And just going through a pandemic. Yeah, you know? once in a lifetime, no, pretty much. That's, that's insane. Every time I think about it, it's like, the last one was how many years ago? Crazy. Yeah, mm. yeah. And that's what, uh, what you said before, how we kind of leave things at work mm. and we don't take it home. That's probably why doctors don't talk about things. Mm. And, mm. But we also do that for a reason. That's because you don't want to take it home and you don't want to affect the people in your own personal life by mm. the stuff that's going on with you at work mm. because that can have huge impact on them. Well, also, we'd last a fortnight. Mm. Yeah, nice. yeah. Yeah. If we took home every single disaster, yeah. we exactly. saw it. Do you guys, uh, do you all remember your first one? Yeah. First death, would you? No, no, first one. Yeah. I mean, it could be your first death, but the first one you took home. Yeah. There was this uh, lady who came in um, at the beginning of my night shift who was short of breath and we did a chest x-ray and we took some bloods and she had a pneumonia and she's a bit short of breath but actually she was okay she was doing all right she wasn't you know floridly septic um and i remember her just looking a little bit nervous and just telling her look you've got a bit of a chest infection it'll knock you for six you'll feel a bit rubbish for a while you know, we've got we've got a drip in. We're giving you some antibiotics. We're giving you some fluids. Everything looks okay. It'll be all right. Um, 
and I made her a cup of tea and then I left her alone for a few hours seeing other patients and then um, I get a bleep from the head nurse on that ward who just tells me uh, that can you come see the patient I think she's dying can you prescribe her something to make her comfortable and I was like, whoa, what are we, what are you talking about? Can you just give me the patient's name again? Is that the same patient? And she was like, yeah, she's, you know, I've done this a long time. I think she's dying. I was like, right, okay, come see her. And she's it's like, I'm seeing a completely different human being. She's just like gasping for air, you know, um, blood pressures in her boots, everything's, you know, and she's not really responding to me. And we go through everything. We give her the fluids. We give her upscale the antibiotics. We do everything that we can, and I'm pretty much just with her for the rest of the night. And then, and I call her family at like six a.m. They come in at six thirty, and she passed away at half seven. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first one that I didn't expect it when I met them or when I saw them that day that they would pass away that day and I think that's what it, it just, that one got to me mm. that was my first one that took me ages I think it gets to you because I don't know, like people that are about to pass away they have this feeling and they kind of like tell you especially when you know. say yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, like she was feeling a bit nervous and yeah. she's like I was like, Why like, are you no, nervous? You're you look, fine. You look yeah. fine. Yeah. And then it's it's giving them that of course you don't know they're gonna pass away because maybe they just look like they have like the mildest yeah. symptoms ever. So you're like, No, you're gonna be fine, it's gonna you're gonna like recover from this and you give them like quote unquote false reassurance. Mm. Mm. But they just know it within them. That's I think mm. that's where I have the exact same thing as my so my first proper kind of death when I was a foundation here one doc um, it was on my weekend shift and I was upstairs in the wards covering it um, this was just before ward round and then one of the nurses called me and says this patient just doesn't quite look right so I go and see her she's quite unwell um, she had very low blood pressure and she needed you know she, but essentially she was septic again like meds patient as well so I put a cannula in but as I put the cannula in so there's only in about you know within five minutes down the line from when I first got there. Once I got the cannula in, that's when she just basically um, lost consciousness, and that was it. She wasn't responding at all. Well, um, but before I actually did the cannula, I quickly examined her. Did it, um, and, and she, you know, her ab- her stomach was really, really tender. Um, and then that's when I put the cannula in, and as I said, by the time I got the cannula in, that was pretty much it. She had unrecordable blood pressure. Um, and then, but the thing is before, like I said, before she just lost consciousness and became unresponsive, she kind of, she had this horrible feeling because she, she she, told me, she said, am I going to die as I was putting the cannula in? And I didn't really know what to say. I just stood there and said, uh, uh, no. And then I just went and put a cannula in because that was what I had to do. Yeah. And then obviously every time I tell someone you're going to be fine, I haven't stopped doing it. Like I do still do it because I don't I don't think I think 
if the reassurance is true i don't say it if i if i don't believe it so i think if the assurance is true it's you've done it you've made someone feel better and if if it's mm. false then with all respect they're not going to remember it so i still say it but every time i say it i think of her every mm. single time i say it yeah I then went and cried in the in oh, the sluice yeah. after, yeah, that was sad. It's tough, man. But the only way I kind of get through those things is music. That's a huge part yeah. of my life. Yeah. And that's what buffers all of this emotional impact from work. It's yeah. just me plugging into music. Yeah. That's what I've found. Do you know what? I, like, especially to, like just speaking with you guys now, um, it just reminds me of like my thoughts when I'm just like alone thinking that mm. doctors grow up so quickly mm. <laughs> do you know yeah. like we come into this at earliest 22 yeah All right, roughly yeah. something like that 18 plus 5 oh wow maths okay quick work <laughs> <laughs> 23 23 but imagine like a 23 year old um, just having to deal with someone who is dying and not just you know you're out on the street or you're at home and you may not even have the capability of um, treating this person but we're taught to have the skills to try and treat these people yeah mm -hmm. but you then you just you have to like just grow up so quickly and you see your first death so quickly mm -hmm. or manage this semi by yourself maybe just before you're trying to get you know your cannulas in and do mm -hmm. all the things that you can do first and then they just pass without you getting a senior involved and I, I always say like I as a doctor and I out of the street <laughs> <laughs> two completely different people yeah, yeah. Two completely it has to be you can't people. take it home exactly. you have to be a different person if you were one person the whole time you'd just be complete you'd lose mm. your mind yeah it would just affect your personal life so much yeah. that you wouldn't have one in the end yeah even yeah. if someone calls me and talks about work you know dr med comes on to the phone yeah like yeah. it's mm. like yeah. I'd, I'd switch from personality yeah. you have yeah. to switch personality mm. Mm. You think we'll, we'll change when we, when we grow up <laughs> a bit? And do you reckon consultants and registrars, the people a bit more senior than us, have learned to I think they put have. those two personalities together? Yeah. But why? Not sure. I don't. I don't see the benefit. Oh, not see. together. I think they keep it firmly separate. I think that if anything, yeah, I yeah, think they keep it more separate, separate than we do. Yeah. I think that you just go more and more this way. Yeah. Because I think you just have to. Like, once you've got a family, yeah. you have to you look have after to. your think family. About, in your think own about think about our bosses yeah. now. Imagine them with their kids talking the same way they talk to us. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, just no. not. It can't be done. <laughs> At home, they're yeah. just mum and dad. Yeah, they're exactly. just. They're like any other parents. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. Which is weird when you think about it because it's two separate lives. It is. Yeah, it is. Which you and you know as your. You, your job, you're trying to kind of prevent your kids from knowing fully, your children, from knowing what's happening in your life because you don't want them to be exposed to all of yeah. that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. So it's just a weird thought. I think, yeah, I've never discussed it really before. Yeah. These are the sort of thoughts that people don't talk about. Always think about. Mm. Always think about.
And yet no one talks about it. No. But it's also a privilege. Yeah. Definitely also a privilege doing this job. I think caring for somebody at the most vulnerable. Mm. Like when they've got nowhere else to turn. Nowhere else to but mm-hmm. like, help. These like you're somebody that is usually fully functioning and independent for themselves mm. are so ill that somebody's washing for them. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what I mean? That's, yeah. that's it's it's definitely And what I love about treating the elderly patients when I was in geriatrics was when you don't know who exactly they are. You you just kind of you know, you're comforting them in the last few days. And then it's only kind of in the, when you speak, sit down and speak to them, you realise that, I don't know, they fought in World War Two, mm. or their hus- they lost their Best husbands stories. or wives in World War Two, mm. And you, I just literally just used to stand over them and just think about all of that. I thought, that's huge. Mm. Yeah. I treated someone who built the one of the cars that beat the... Was it the land speed record? Is that what it's called? No Whatever way. The record. Oh, that, ro- the, that small the, rocket thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He actually the, built the, it. The really? Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Concord underground. I don't know. And I remember when I was a medical student, I met a guy who claimed that he built uh, Robbie Williams's swimming pool. Really? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Zoom. Did Which one of them? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> one of the fifty. Yeah, exactly. But he was one of the guys. <laughs> it is amazing well, the t- the people you meet, and yeah, the stories they have. Yeah, yeah. Just like sitting down with someone for ten minutes mm-hmm. when you've got time. Yeah. It's just amazing. Yeah. All right. Thanks everyone for listening to our <laughs> podcast. Doctors don't talk. Catch us next time. From me, Nick. It's bye. And from me, Med. And from me, Amazing. Bye, everyone. This is Ayo.